Good afternoon, everyone from Singapore, and welcome to a webinar by the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore. My name is Clemens Che, and I'm a research fellow at the Institute. On top of being your moderator for today's discussion, the title of today's webinar is Perfect Imperfection, Sociocultural and Religious Reforms in Saudi Arabia. So I think maybe I would say a few words about the title because when we talk about perfect imperfection, we are referring not only to human beings, leaders, but also projects and not a single project can be a flawless end product. And so one of the means to encourage improvements is of course to identify challenges and limits to your project. And of course, this applies, this applies to our discussion of the reforms in the kingdom today, which has undergone immense transformation since 2016, when the plans under Vision 2030 by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman were rolled out. So today we are evaluating and assessing the changes in the kingdom, taking stock of uh, you know, the medium-term plan in Vision 2030. And with me today are two prominent experts who have long been working on Saudi Arabia. They are Dr. Stefan Lacroix and Dr. Yasmin Farouk, who are both part of that Sciences Paris circle where I received my own BA education. Now, Stefan was my lecturer some 10 years back, so I, I, I like to welcome both of them. Uh, but before I introduce the profiles of our guest speakers, please let me say a few words about the proceedings of today's webinar. Uh, we're going to be doing something a bit different today from, from our previous Zoom format. So what we're going to be doing is after my short introduction, we'll be having, uh, we're going to play a recording, a podcast recording, which I, I just did it last night with a Saudi scholar. Iman al-Hussein. She's a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. So I did a recording with her about five minutes and I asked her three questions on, on the kingdom. And so we're going to be listening to that recording. And after that, our guest speakers will be responding and reacting to this recording in addition to providing some of their own uh, you know, original comments on, on the situation in, in, in Saudi Arabia. So of course, throughout this dialogue and conversation that I'm going to be having with our speakers, uh, the Q&A segment is open throughout. So I would encourage our audience to put through your questions in the Zoom chat box. So I may then uh, read them out to our speakers. So without further ado, let me introduce the bios of our guest speakers today. First up, we have Dr. Stéphane Lacroix, who is an associate professor of political science at Sciences Po Paris and a researcher at Sciences Po Centre de Recherche Internationale. His work deals with religion and politics with a focus on the Gulf states and Egypt. He is the author of several books dealing with political Islam, Saudi Arabia, and also Egypt. Uh, one of them being Awakening Islam, the Politics of Religious Dissent in Contemporary Saudi Arabia, published by Harvard University Press. Another book, called Saudi Arabia in Transition, Insights on Social, Political, Economic, and Religious Change, published by Cambridge University Press, and also Egypt's Revolutions, Politics, Religion, and Social Movements, published by Palgrave Macmillan. So I'm, I'm really pleased to welcome him on board today's panel. Uh, and our second speaker for today is Dr. Yasmin Farouk, who is a non-resident fellow in the Middle East program at Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Previously, she was a Fulbright Fellow at Yale University during her postdoctoral studies, and her research and publications covers Egypt 
and Saudi Arabia's foreign policies uh, and their relations with the Arab world. So prior to joining Carnegie, uh, Dr. Farouk was based in Egypt where she taught uh, political science and she previously worked at the office of the Egyptian Prime Minister after the 2011 revolution. So welcome to Dr. Yasmin Farouk as well. Welcome to both of them, a real pleasure. So without further ado, I am going to play the recording that I've done with uh, Imana Hussein. How and what can we make of the progress thus far? What are the areas of success and the limits or challenges? Well, the vision has been an important roadmap for Saudis, and it promises so much change and transformation, not only on the social and the cultural scene, but also for the economy. I think for a major project like this, there will always be positive outcomes and maybe not so positive ones, which is totally expected. In terms of the successes, I think it is uh, great that the country has opened up. Uh, we know that next month there will be many cultural events taking place. Yes, there are many who say this is all bread and circus, but I think we shouldn't look at it from a purely critical perspective without also acknowledging the positive outcomes of this transformation. I think the creative art scene has taken some major and uh, important steps. There's so much interest in developing local cinema and television production, which before was not really approved of. Another uh, positive outcome, I think, is the increase of Saudi female participation in the workforce, which has been very impressive, even though unemployment remains high among women. The challenge, I think, um, have been mostly about uh, rising unemployment in general among Saudis. Of course, the vision uh, aims to have more Saudis join the private sector as opposed to relying on government jobs. The transition has not been easy and the private sector is still hesitant to employ Saudis. So I think job creations or uh, the, um, you know, finding, creating more jobs for Saudi is becoming the most or, you know, the most pressing challenge so far in terms of the transformation the country is going through. Thanks, Iman. We've all seen further reforms this year in areas of women's rights, like you said, and also on judicial reforms. Uh, earlier in April this year, in an interview given to Al Arabiya, the Crown Prince highlighted achievements in housing, op optimism, in, optimism in reducing unemployment and, and about change and growth, I quote, there's nothing called too fast. So he mentioned a V-shaped recovery with reference to the pandemic effects, but also about the fact that times may be harsh for a short time before picking up again. And he said that with reference to taxation. So there's a lot of optimism domestically, especially among the youth, but is there an alternative narrative or narratives to this bright and rosy picture about how well reforms are received? That's a very good question. And I think one of the issues I see a lot mentioned by analysts and commentators writing on Saudi Arabia is on Saudi youth. Many analysts argue that young Saudis are happy with their reforms, that they are very optimistic, that they are X and Y, but we cannot really say that all young Saudis are in this category or that. It is too broad of an assumption and definitely too simplistic. I am sure there are Saudi youth who are thrilled with the changes. We 
we've seen so far. Others might be skeptical because of rising unemployment or even the narrow space for debate that has become the norm now. Some are conservatives and are definitely not happy with how things uh, are these days. On the other hand, people who are 35 and older might also be happy with these changes and others are definitely not. It is not really a generational divide because the country is big and Saudis come from all kinds of backgrounds. So it's only natural that these changes are perceived uh, or received differently among different Saudis from all kinds of backgrounds and age groups. Thanks, Iman. And finally, one last question on religion, because there's been a lot of talk about moderate Islam and the Crown Prince specifically warned in the same interview I mentioned earlier against committing blindly to religious texts of specific scholars, in this case, referring to Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdul Wahab. We've read and heard about the regime shackling the Alnama, the clerics. So what do you make of the kingdom altering its religious image while remaining as the custodian of the two holy mosques? Uh, this has been very um, interesting, uh, what Saudi Arabia has been doing regarding uh, its changing or changing its approach uh, on this regard. The Muslim World League uh, has become the face of this change with its Secretary General, Mohammed Al-Isa. Al-Isa has uh, been instrumental in showing the kingdom's changed approach. He's talking to Muslims in the diaspora and asking them to integrate in their societies. I've written a long paper on this last year that talks about Al-Isa and uh, this uh, approach that uh, he's adopted that maybe others can read if they want. Thank you, Iman. So thanks again to Iman last night for, for coming on board to, to give the recording. But now I would like to invite our guest speakers, of course, to, to respond to whatever that was mentioned uh, in the recording, ranging from you know, social, cultural reforms that have been rolled out, but also in the last bit about moderate Islam. So without further ado, please allow me to invite Dr. Yasmin Farouk to take over from here. Yasmin, please. Thank you very much. Um, I'll try not to bore you um, to just react to some like um, three points that Iman mentioned, and then to just very briefly say four observations about what she didn't mention, probably because of the time limit in that podcast, and that maybe gives more context to what she, she said uh, for the people who don't really know Saudi Arabia as much as uh, us working on the country for a long while. Uh, first of all, I really loved when Iman said, you know, how we should nu nuance that um, category that we constructed and that the Saudi authorities constructed and called the youth, right? A lot of the policies and the reforms are being portrayed as catering to the youth, that the youth are supporting them, that Saudi Arabia is young, which makes, you know, all these changes that we casually call reforms being welcomed inside and being this youth category is used to fend off really any kind of criticism to any of these changes. It is very important to know that this is not a homogeneous group. There is not, a, a, in general, it's the same since 2011 in the Arab world. You know, we talk about the youth of the Arab Spring. If you're talking about at the age in terms of numbers, yes, you can call them youth. But then in terms of the actions, ide ideology, uh, rationales, they are different. And as I was talking to my uh, very dear friend, Stefan, the other 
um, day. Um, you know, it's um, when you say that the youth are very much accepting those social transformations and even the taming of the religious establishment. And even this category is also used to say, oh, the position towards Israel has changed in so many controversial or let's say problematic issues, uh, the youth are used to justify that these are welcomed policies. Uh, I always remind people that these youth were raised by parents and those parents are still part of that society and they pass on ideas and norms that are inherited that contribute to the reaction of these policies. Um, so this nuance is very important. Her last point also that I, I, I love to highlight for people who are not necessarily following Saudi Arabia on a day-to-day -day basis about how Saudi Arabia is trying to um, change its Islamic image, right? And there is so much to be said about that. I'm sure Stefan is going to talk about this, but there is a lot to be said about that. Specifically, when we talk about the word Muslim League, uh, Iman mentioned that, you know, uh, part of this changing Saudi image is to say that a little bit to deconstruct that idea of there is one Islamic Ummah and that we can address this Ummah as one and that Saudi Arabia represents somehow this Ummah. Right. I think it's very positive that Saudi Arabia right now is saying, uh, well, you know, Muslims should be integrated into their own societies. Uh, but Saudi Arabia will always be the, you know, a center of this Muslim Ummah. What Saudi Arabia does and says will always count for Muslims across the globe. Uh, but here's the thing, the word Muslim League doesn't only focus on Muslims abroad. There is a clear mission for this word Muslim League to say this is a new Saudi Arabia, a modern Saudi Arabia, and to, to speak specifically to the most anti-Saudi of audiences, whether in the West, with a special focus on talking to other faiths, especially, you know, uh, people of Jewish faith, people, uh, Christians, to say, you know, uh, this is a different Saudi Arabia now more, I would dare to say, than talking to other Muslims uh, in other communities. The amount of work of money that goes to improve the image of Saudi Arabia in non-Muslim communities, I believe is more significant uh, than the effort put, you know, to have a real substantive debate with Muslim communities. Now, um, I would love to discuss this further, uh, you know, in the Q&A, but let me, um, and I, I, I think I may have how much, how many minutes do I have left? Okay. I think you're, 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 you're just nice, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, okay. A bit more to add, please go ahead, yeah. So let me add five general, um, as I said, observations to contextualize all what you're saying. Um, first of all, um, the assessment of the changes taking place in Saudi Arabia, and I insist on calling them changes because I have become very conscious of the use of the word reform because of comments from, you know, some Saudi citizens them themselves, not because these changes don't have a positive impact and aspect. They definitely, they most definitely do, but because it's, they are complex and they are complicated. And when we use the word reform casually, we don't necessarily draw attention to the complexities of these changes. So um, a lot of these changes, their assessment, their impact, the reaction to them, whether inside Saudi Arabia or especially outside Saudi Arabia, has been uh, overshadowed by the person 
pushing them. And I'm saying pushing them when I'm talking about the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, because a lot of these changes and so-called reforms were initiated before him. But it is true that he gave them a very um, aggressive and violent push, both in the positive and negative senses of the words aggressive and violent, right? Uh, also, um, the way those reforms were received were linked to his personality in a sense, not only to the extreme actions that he might have taken, uh, otherwise, uh, politically especially, but also to the fact that he's young. And so at the beginning, you know, the assessment, the expectations were very, very, very high. And so when now you have doubt, it is also part of the fact that um, doesn't have to do with the reforms themselves or the changes themselves, but because of the amount of attention that was centered on his character. My second observation is these social and religious changes continue to have a lot of tensions uh, uh, when it comes to the relationship to uh, Westernization or the West and at the same time, the fight against um, extremism, right? Um, Saudi officials themselves in private meetings would tell you that all of the international reports from international organizations and Western countries were calling on us to do exact those same things. And so we're doing them, which makes you question whether they're doing this really to please the Western international organizations and uh, you know, attract foreign direct investment and develop their um, network of international relations, or are they really doing this to appeal to a domestic audience that does want this reform, or at least some sectors of it, called for these reforms and initiated them. The second issue is that uh, these reforms, whether on the short social or religious levels, are linked to the fight against um, extremism, which um, makes it, in many cases, uh, very difficult to oppose them. There is a constant link to uh, this is done to fight extremism, to get rid of alien extremist influences that were for that are foreign to Saudi society. They are part of a bigger patriotic project, as Iman mentioned, called Vision 2030. And this linked to the fact that there is a very high level of political repression makes it really difficult when you're inside Saudi Arabia to speak freely and to assess freely those changes. And hence, for us to be able to say, oh no, Saudi youth loves them, or Saudi youth don't like them, right? Um, my fourth observation is that, um, my third, sorry, observation is that um, there is still um, some kind of a gap between how people sitting outside Saudi Arabia assess those reforms versus you know, people sitting inside Saudi Arabia. Um, it is very hard when uh, these changes have an impact on your daily life when you're a Saudi citizen to be able to make the kind of black and white judgments and assessments that experts like us sometimes sitting in, in their offices make saying, you know, it's great women are driving. It's great women now can learn. It's great Riyadh is hosting its first philosophy conference. You know, it's uh, uh, versus people inside the kingdom who see their daily lives changing in very positive terms sometimes, but also see it linked to another package of negative reform, negative changes, or uh, these positive changes going too far for the taste of a society that remains conservative, 
right? Also the fact that these reforms are used by the Saudi government to really not respond, but rather to fend off any criticism or any critical questions that are being asked, whether by the Saudi audience or by us, the international audience, studying those reforms and trying to research those uh, reforms. My last observation is that despite everything I said, if you, if you want to, you know, it has been a few years, and if you want to look at these reforms, um, and in general to what's going on inside Saudi Arabia and from Saudi Arabia, um, there is really a true question to be asked whether there is some kind of a learning curve, right? Whether there is a learning curve from um, reforms that were um, kicked off uh, on a very wide scope, in a very aggressive way, uh, and, and very fast. Uh, and um, I see that in some sectors, um, there might be some kind of uh, learning curve that is taking place, like, for example, uh, you know, in the entertainment sector, that is one of the sectors where the changes are being the most controversial and debated in, in Saudi society, where, you know, at the beginning, they were creating for a specific sector, the westernized, again, youth, uh, and then, you know, they're trying to adapt the events to different tastes, to different sectors, to different uh, generations, uh, the, all the process that went into the formulation of the public, the public decency law, uh, the debates again on the fact that, you know, what, what does it mean to modernize Saudi society? Uh, what does it mean to make it quote unquote normal and so on and so forth? Uh, I think I'll stop here, but I wanted just to provide, you know, like an, um, a general uh, context, but I'd be more happy to get into the details of the changes in the Q&A. Thank you, Yasmin, that was great. And uh, now I'd like to invite Dr. Stefan Lacroix to, to respond only to to Iman's uh, remarks earlier, but also talk a bit about the religious legitimacy that, that the kingdom has. It combines both ideological and functional elements. So what has changed, what hasn't? So all yours, Stefan. Thank you very much, uh, Clemens. It's a great pleasure to be here with you. It's a great pleasure to see Yasmin as well, and to see some friends in the audience from what I can see from the names. So, uh, so thank you, Clemens, for, uh, for the invitation. Um, so there are maybe four points that I wanted to address here, um, and I'll try to be quick. Um, the first is that uh, I think we, we should understand that what's happening on the level of religion in Saudi Arabia is revolutionary, in a sense that it is a fundamental uh, transformation of the initial pact upon which Saudi Arabia was built. And the founding pact of Saudi Arabia, the one that goes back to 1744, Saudi Arabia is a much older country than what many people believe, right? It has almost three centuries of existence. Um, that pact was uh, built upon the idea of a division of tasks between clerics and princes. Uh, princes had politics and clerics had society. Right, you could put it that way. That is, the clerics were in charge of defining the social religious norm that would govern society. And the princes were in charge of defining the politics, right? This is how Saudi Arabia functioned until 2015. So it was um, um, an unwritten rule that, you know, the way Saudis live is defined by clerics' uh, understanding of religion, uh, understanding of Sharia. 
and the clerics would be the one issuing the norms, right, upon, upon which uh, people have to live. Um, and this was respected generally until 2015, right? That is why Saudi women couldn't drive, that is why you couldn't have uh, entertainment, because all those were things that the clerics thought that were against Islam. So what's been happening since 2015 is fundamentally, uh, you know, transformational in a sense that now what we have is princes uh, stepping on the clerics' shoes and one prince, MBS, defining religion for them <laughs> and defining what the Sharia says instead of the clerics and defining how Saudis should and can live without, uh, uh, you know, you know, letting this uh, or outsourcing this to the clerics. So MBS basically today is taking both functions. He's abolishing the division of tasks that used to exist. He even talks about hadith, as you could see in this um, uh, Al-Arabiya interview, where you have MBS discussing, you know, different types of hadith, and, and I'll come back to that maybe later in the, in the talk. So this is very new, and this is completely upsetting the, the balance that uh, Saudi Arabia was funded upon. The second question, and my second point, which derives from the first, is then if this is so, you know, revolutionary, why has there not been more dissent coming from the clerical side? Um, and here, um, I think that we should understand that Salafis are um, a very peculiar religious current. And mainstream Salafis, which are the ones that dominate the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia, believe, yes, in the division of tasks that I talked about, but they also very strongly believe in uh, you know, the unconditional obedience to the ruler. They believe that politics is to the rulers and that they should obey the rulers because this is the way uh, an Islamic state should work. So now you, you know, and, and they call it ta'atwalil amr. This is, you know, a fundamental principle of, uh, of Salafi uh, Islam, especially as practiced by the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia. And that explains why, however embarrassed the clerics may have been uh, by the changes, and many of them, uh, many of them do not like what is going on. But they believe that still, you know, you cannot go publicly against the rulers. So the most you can do is stay silent. And what you've seen since 2015 is a great number of people go silent. You know, they, they won't oppose, but, you know, of course, they're, they're, you know, and they're embarrassed. So they, you know, what they can do is, is, is keep silent. Um, this, I think, is, is, is fundamental. And it's important because here we, we you know, there, there is always this, this comparison that doesn't work, which uh, wants to see Saudi Arabia like a theocracy uh, and compare it to Iran. Those are two very different systems, right? Saudi Arabia, I've, I've called it before, and, and, and I was before 2015. I've always tried to argue that Saudi Arabia was paradoxically secular, right? I've, I've talked about paradoxical secularism in that notion of a division of tasks, right? Saudi Arabia always like in terms of the structures of the state, religion and politics were always separated, right? Of course, it was not a secularized society. Don't get me wrong. It was a very conservative society, but one in which, you know, the, 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 the divisions between the political establishment and the religious establishment and their different tasks were absolutely clear. In a sense, this is helping MBS today, right? And this also explains why MBS can do what he is doing because 
the system permits him in some way to do this. Of course, there's been repression as well. There's been a faction of clerics that openly went against the reforms and or the changes. And I agree with Yasmin, you know, we should call them changes. Um, and that faction actually belongs to a sub-trend of Salafism that is known as the Sahwam, um, the awakening, that is the Saudi version of political Islam, basically. And, um, and that goes back to the um, influences political Islam from outside Saudi Arabia had on Saudi Islam starting in the 1950s and 60s. So what you also had, because Saudi Arabia in a way is connected to the rest of the Muslim world, received uh, uh, many uh, um, um, you know, Muslims from outside, but also activists. You know? So this kind of you know, led to the development within Saudi Arabia of also a culture of religious dissent in certain milieus. That was not ever the official religious establishment. Those people always existed on the side of the religious establishment, but they were much more political. And those people from the Sahwa, who were also clerics, but not official ones, you know, unofficial ones, um, those people were um, much more willing to talk about politics. They believed that clerics should talk about politics. They believed that this division of tasks shouldn't exist. They believed that the state and the politics of the state should be guided by religion and designed along the lines of religion. Um, so, um, so, so, you know, and, and some of them were actually, you know, uh, doing, you know, understanding this in a conservative way, other in a, you know, moderate, even sometimes progressive way. Salman al-Uda was one of those who's now in jail and, and condemned to the death penalty. He's one of those who actually, you know, come from the Sahwa, believes that politics should be defined by religion, but also, you know, understands this to mean more democracy, uh, et cetera, right? So religion, as you know, can be read in, in many different ways. Um, so these are the people that MBS went against, right? Because their main um, um, sin from MBS's perspective is that they are clerics who believe that politics is part of their duty and who speak about politics. So those have been the ones that have been targeted uh, through repression. And as we saw, um, you know, and, and Salman Aouda is one of them and he's, uh, he's been condemned. Uh, uh, he's in jail and, 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 and he's uh, um, uh, you know, uh, threatened with the death penalty at this point. So this is a very serious case. And many, many others from this same current have been, have been targeted. Um, so the third question is, um, you know, is this going to work, right, on, in the long term, right? Can, can, can this have any long-term effect, right? And here, you know, I would be maybe slightly more skeptical, right? I think that uh, MBS has been, uh, as in many of his policies, very interested in PR, right? Public relations, you know, he's a, he's a, he's someone who, you know, is part of that new generation of politicians, which we also have in the West, who uh, believe that PR is central to politics, right? And he's been really good at, you know, uh, branding his project and talking about it and putting new figures in charge. And uh, Iman uh, mentioned Mohammed Al-Isa, who's uh, the head of the new uh, Muslim World League, uh, who is indeed uh, someone whose speech is uh, radically different from what we ever heard from Salafis. Um, he talks about religious coexistence all the time. He's 
travels the world to meet uh, priests and rabbis, and you know, and he talks about religious tolerance, and you know, so that's Muhammad al-Isa, and you have a few of these people. But when you look inside the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia, you have the same conservative Salafis. I mean, you have a new, a few new heads that are really good for PR. But when you look at how the, the establishment is structured, it is structured through the exactly same conservative people that have always been there. Except that these people believe that yes, you know, um, so you know, you they, they obedience to the ruler. So you know, you <laughs> you go with what MBS says, even if you're not really convinced. But at the same time, you continue to defend a um, you know, wherever you can, a conservative vision of society. So, you know, the establishment itself hasn't really changed, right? Um, and even more, I mean, the texts of Salafism uh, that are used in Saudi Arabia have not really changed. I mean, if you go to a, an Islamic uh, bookstore in Riyadh, you'll find the same books that you've ever uh, found. I mean, there's no change in that, right? So in that sense, you know, uh, because what is happening in Saudi Arabia is really a process that comes from the top and very much a one-man show with MBS. You know, there is not the same, I, I think that, you know, transforming a religious tradition requires more than simply, you know, um, um, a, a prince at the top saying, well, from now on, this is the way it's gonna be, right? I mean, you have to engage with that tradition. You have to put clerics, you know, in charge of producing a new understanding of that discursive tradition which is not really the case now. You know, even clerics themselves have really a hard time justifying why they're saying exactly the opposite of what they've ever said. You know, but like the, you know, and you've had plenty of the scenes of, you know, a Saudi cleric on TV, you know, having to defend why women can drive while the same guy said for decades that women couldn't drive. And people are like, but you know, and so, you know, what, what are the arguments? And, and, you know, again, you know, because the tradition itself has not been addressed. You know, all of this sounds like, you know, some type of, um, of, of, you know, kind of new uh, um, um, discourse kind of imposed from above that at this point hasn't really transformed uh, Salafism per se. Um, MBS has uh, said that he wants to do this, right? Um, he talked about an institute to reassess Hadith. He even himself talked about Hadith in that interview. But again, I think that interview is interesting because it is also symptomatic of the problem, right? It is a one-man show. It is MBS talking about hadith. It is not a congregation of ulama reassessing hadith. It is MBS uh, talking about hadith. So in that sense, you know, I think this is where I see a limit here, you know, in, 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 in the long term. If MBS really wants this to, uh, to, to have an effect in the long term you need to address the tradition. You cannot simply believe that slogans and you know, grand princely statements is going to transform a tradition that is 300 years old. Um, my last point, and, and I, I don't wanna be longer than that, is, uh, and you asked this before Clemens, uh, what type of effect is this gonna have on Salafism more generally outside uh, Saudi Arabia? Um, and, and here again, I would um, argue that, of course, at the symbolic level, and I agree with Yasmin, Saudi Arabia is a country that is, um, you know, um, you know, looked upon by other Muslims as a, um, a you know, a, the place of the two holy mosques and 
and that has an influence of, you know, because of its um, location uh, in the Arabian Peninsula, with Mecca and Medina, it's a country that has an influence over Muslims um, across, um, across the world. But at the same time, uh, when you look at Salafism per se, um, Sa Saudis do not have the type of control over Salafism worldwide that many imagine. And again, here, I think the, the, the comparison with Iran has also been very problematic, right? Because, um, you know, both Iran and Saudi Arabia have used religion uh, in, you know, as a tool of soft power, uh, you know, to try to, you know, train or, uh, you know, or, or um, create proxies, you know, across the world. Except that the Iranian proxies are really proxies, <laughs> you know. The, the, you know, in Iran, it's much more centralized. I mean, you know, the, the the people who actually work with Iran in different countries, you know, they actually, you know, you know, take a good share of their orders in Tehran. You know, they 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 really work very closely with Tehran. It's never been the case for Salafism, right? Salafism has always been very decentralized, um, you know, with different levels of authority. Um, Saudi sheikhs were once you know, very prominent in Salafism, maybe until the death of Sheikh Ibn Baz, who was the, the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia until 1999, and was widely respected across the Salafi world. But since the 2000s, Saudi Arabia doesn't have that type of, uh, you know, uh, dominant figure uh, in Salafism. You have Salafi sheikhs actually from outside Saudi Arabia that have accumulated a lot of religious legitimacy and that do not always agree with uh, the Saudis. Uh, you have all these divisions within Salafism, which I mentioned before with the Sahwa, and you find them outside uh, Saudi Arabia. And of course, you know, uh, uh, jihadi Salafism, of course, is one of these examples of how, you know, certain groups can reinterpret Salafism in uh, radical uh, political revolutionary ways. <laughs> so, uh, so I think that, you know, imagining that suddenly because Saudi Arabia says something, all the Salafis in the world will just, you know, listen and change is, is an illusion, right? I think, again, you know, there is a form of symbolic authority by Saudi Arabia that will have some diffuse effect on Muslims across the globe. But do not expect Salafis in other countries to suddenly you know, all became little Muhammad al-Isa's because Muhammad al-Isa exists. It's not going to be the case, right? So let's not, you know, overestimate the kind of impact this will have. Saudi Arabia has lost control of Salafism a long time ago. And, and Salafis will continue to be Salafis. Um, and I will uh, end here. Thank you. Thanks, Stefan. I think that was a great overview alongside Yasmin's. Um, and, and it gave us a lot to ponder and also to think about a number of uh, thought-provoking things that came out of my head there. And I've received uh, a number of questions already. So I'm going to start by exercising my privilege as moderator to, with, with a question first before I proceed with the audiences. And the question that I have, and, and, and both of you talked about this transition or waves that Saudi Arabia have been has been going through. And we've seen the kingdom transit from you know, the original religious national, nationalism onto on then onto pan-Islamism under King Faisal in the 60s and throughout the Cold War to shield the country from forces associated with uh, Arab post-colonial nationalism. And, and you talked about also the Sahwa in, in the 90s 
the political awakening. So now, what kind of period are we entering? Is it really new kind of heightened nationalism that is much needed? And what is your assessment of, of this? Is it really necessary to, to execute the reforms that, that, that the Crown Prince has in mind? And perhaps we, we can start with uh, Yasmin first. Thank you. Uh, and of course, I forgot to thank you for inviting me. It's really a pleasure. Um, it is not the first time that the theme of nationalism has been used to actually uh, tone down and restrict the uh, religious influence uh, on the public sphere, but also on Saudis themselves. Uh, under King Abdullah, which is when I started studying Saudi Arabia, but I had lived there since before, um, there was also, in his way, he was way more prudent, more, more cautious than MBS, but there was also a doubling down that on the fact that being Saudi is not uh, just being uh, Wahhabi or Muslim, these are not equals. Part of being Saudi is uh, Islam, is that Islamic component of the Saudi identity. But there was also a doubling down in the public discourse and even at schools and in the media on the role of the Al Saud in uniting Saudis, in creating Saudi Arabia, in providing security, and in the attachment to the land. Right. The issue, the, the, the change that came with the MBS is that um, this doubling down has become more violent, more repressive and linked to a very uh, visible uh, and very deep repression of the religious establishment uh, at the same time. Uh, when I say that it's more aggressive and more violent means that the scope of changes in Saudi school books to highlight, you know, that being Muslim or Saudi Islam is just only one component of a Saudi identity that is bigger, uh, is more expensive today than it was under King uh, Abdullah. Uh, there is also this narrative that um, Stefan highlighted, but also that is being actually very much highlighted in the, in the official narrative that says that whatever extremism came into so-called Saudi Islam, it's foreign, it's alien. Saudi Islam, we're going to bring it back to being authentic, to being national, uh, which means being moderate, right? So. Um, this interplay between, you know, uh, if we may dare to use the word secular nationalism and a nationalism that links being Saudi to being Muslim, it is not the first time that it is done. It has been, it, this game has been played before. It is just that today it is being played with more, uh, with more repressive tools, if you want. Thanks, Yasmin. Stefan? Yes, I completely agree with Yasmin as always. Um, um, I, I think that you can really, you know, as, as Yasmin clearly said, you, 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 can, you can trace back, um, you know, the, the rise of, of a form of Saudi nationalism uh, to before MBS. It's just been, you know, more outspoken right now and radicalized in some way. But um, I mean, there's really kind of a correlation between, uh, you know, the moment when Saudi Arabia you know, confronts political Islam domestically and globally, you know, like starting in the 90s, you know, when, when you know, there's this uh, moment of clash uh, with the Sahwa and then, you know, the rise of jihadism led by Saudi, Bin Laden. Um, and, and, you know, and this kind of, you know, 
um, pushes the Saudis, and at that time it's Crown Prince Abdullah, later King Abdullah, to try to develop a counter discourse. You know, this is the moment when the Saudis understand that Islam for them is a double-edged sword, that it can be used against them as well, right? And, and I think it's a shock to the Saudi regime then, you know, until the 90s, the Saudi regime believes that, you know, we are Islam and, you know, Islam is always good for us because, you know, we are the ones controlling the Islamic resource. Um, at that point, the Saudis understand that they need another resource, which is, uh, which is, uh, which is nationalism. Um, I think if I wrote a study a long time ago, uh, I don't, don't remember the exact dates, but it is, for instance, around 1999 or 2000 that for the first time, the Saudi curriculum introduces tarbiya wataniya, you know, the national education on the side of Islamic education in school curricula. So in Islamic education, you learn about, you know, what it means for you to be a Muslim. In tarbiya wataniya, you learn what it means for you to be a Saudi, the role of the al Saud. It's exactly the same moment when the National Museum in Riyadh is created. Right, and the National Museum also highlights Saudi history specifically as distinguished from other national histories. So, you know, you see that trend going all the way back uh, to those days. Of course, with MBS, you know, it has become completely outspoken. I think that in a sense, MBS understands that because he is uh, redefining the role of religion in the country. Uh, he is redefining the foundational, the, the foundational pacts that I talked about, you know, he is putting religion under politics, you know, which, which was not the case before. Uh, he needs a new uh, cement for the country. He needs a new glue, right? And he wants nationalism to be that glue, uh, which is why, you know, it, it, you know, things have really, you know, uh, uh, gone surprisingly, uh, I mean, radical in terms of the statements that you hear. I mean, you know, um, even, you know, when MBS speaks about Palestinians, I mean, this, this was completely unimaginable before 2015, when he talks about Palestinians as, you know, um, uh, you know, they, they've, we've, you know, they, we've, we've given them so much and they, what have they done for us? You know, which, which is this type of very transactional mentality that MBS has, you know, that, you know, we, and I think we have to understand this transactional mentality of MBS to understand many of the things he does. In a sense, he's transactional a bit like Trump, you know, like in a sense that, you know, we, we you know, you remember when Trump, you know, was, was uh, raging against NATO and US allies by saying, we give them money, but what do they give us in return, you know? And MBS has been looking at many things in that same way. The Saudis have been giving a lot of money and what have they got in return? You know, what matters is Saudi national interests. So we, you know, and not ideology, right? And so you hear this very clearly in MBS's voice and especially, and it's even more radical when you listen to his supporters. I mean, you know, the, on Twitter, it was a big phenomenon uh, of, you know, what they called in Saudi, the Watanjiya, you know, which is uh, not just Watani, but Watanji. So it's, uh, it's like a, um, a suffix in Arabic, which kind of, you know, is, is derogatory in some way, but also, you know, you know, you know it's, you know, not just nationalists, it's, you know, nationalisticism, you know, it's, it's you, you would add one ism there, you know, it's like, you know, these people really are chauvinist, you know, and you see this type of chauvinist discourse on Twitter very much around MBS. So yes, you know, there is something here that is both new in the form, 
but not absolutely new. I think many of what the things MBS is doing actually, and, and Yasmin pointed out very well, you know, are things that actually started before him. He is just accelerating considerably the process and radicalizing the process. Thanks, Stefan. That was great. And, and I think it brings us to a new theme of, of, of inclusion and, and you know, embracing, I guess, embracing diversity and inclusion because we've seen, you know, for example, the, the recent announcement of, uh, of, of Saudi Arabia granting citizenship to a group of talented expats. And, and they've become the second Gulf Arab state to, to introduce a formal naturalization program for foreigners with exceptional skills. So, let me group a few questions from the audience here um, on the topic of, of inclusion uh, from both my colleague Prema and also someone from the audience, uh, Nadia Hassan. So the, the, the real question is, are these social reforms for the purpose of embracing modernity? You know, um, you know once upon a time, there was a subject of intense discussion at the National Dialogue where terminology such as Tasnif, Believer, Infidel were debated upon. So where does the kingdom stand now in terms of inclusion, you know, this, this aspect of, of the social fabric that we're talking about? So, Yasmin. I mean, what do you mean by inclusion? If you're really telling everybody you're part of Saudi society, but then whomever tries to criticize is then called a traitor or, you know, or is immediately jailed. In terms of um, in terms of narrative and in, in terms of policies, yes, there were clear directives, and we wrote about this in the in the um, we wrote a paper with Nathan Brown on those religious changes, and they are really, as Stefan mentioned, from top down. But it is not just narrative; it's procedures here and there that are linked to procedures on this, you know. Um, across the state bureaucracy in general, right? Um, but to go back to your point, so in terms of inclusion, yes, there were clear directives to uh, imams in mosques that they shouldn't target, you know, other non-Salafi, non-Wahhabi, non-Sunni communities, right? So if you want to talk about, you know, the inclusion, for example, of the Shia minority, of the Ismaili minority in Saudi Arabia, uh, yes, some members of those minorities would tell you, yeah, uh, the, the narrative towards us uh, has changed. But you have this, and of course, of course, the narrative and the perception of women has changed. They are more included in the society. I mean, you have to admit that before these changes, women were perceived as being second class citizens. They were not included in public debates. They were not included in the workplace. They were not included in, in some education areas, for God's sake. So yes, if you want to talk about inclusion in that sense, yes, it exists. But if you want to talk about the political inclusion or the, the social inclusion in terms of debate of let's first of all, define what is reforms together, decide on these policies together, and then let's hear the feedback from everybody, then of course the answer is definitely no. These policies were not formulated in inclusive ways. The fact that they are positive, that the people are welcoming them, it's because they coincided with already, um, as I said, a changing society that had was already talking about these debates. Uh, it, it coincided with a phase under 
Crown Prince, then later King Abdullah, where this kind of debate was allowed. It was allowed to talk in public that it's time for women to drive. It's time to curb the religious establishment. Oh, should we close the shops during prayer times or not? Right? In that sense, that phase where these changes didn't take place was more inclusive because everybody was talking about it and everybody had the right in small circles, in closed circles to talk about them. Thanks, Yasmin. Stefan, would like to add on? Yeah, I would, I would only agree again with Yasmin. I think that um, you know, inclusion and exclusion used to be defined in Saudi Arabia in religious terms, right? You know, it, was, it was about you know, defining, uh, uh, you know, for instance, you know, the, the Shia, uh, for instance, were uh, usually excluded from many things, although things got better under King Abdullah later, you know, was the national dialogue and everything. But, you know, there was historically in Saudi Arabia, a process of, you know, of orthodoxy, religious orthodoxy as a criteria for inclusion and exclusion. Now under MBS, it's political orthodoxy that defines inclusion and exclusion. So it's not takfir anymore, it's tahween, you know. <laughs> so we've moved from takfir to tahween, you know. So tahween is calling someone else a, a traitor. And, and yes, what you see now in Saudi Arabia uh, with this Watanji uh, phenomenon that I talked about is, um, you, know, the, you know, the use of a language that was completely alien to Saudi Arabia, which is actually much more common in, in, in Arab republics, you know, where, you know, calling your political enemy a traitor to the nation and et cetera, and uh, a foreign agent. And, and this has all been used since 2015 against political opponents in Saudi Arabia, right? Uh, uh, accusing them of ties with Qatar and ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the criteria for inclusion and exclusion has moved from the religious. It's much better in terms of religion now. <laughs> I mean, in the sense it's, you know, the Shia probably feel less stigmatized as Shia today. But anyone who disagrees politically now is stigmatized. So again, we've, we've moved from a, a, a religious criteria to a political criteria when it comes to inclusion and exclusion. Um, um, and just maybe, um, you know, uh, on the, 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 the beginning of your question, you mentioned uh, uh, this uh, idea of giving uh, citizenship to talented expats and everything. I think this is also important to comment on. I think um, MBS um, wants to transform Saudi Arabia into uh, an XXL version of the UAE and Qatar to some extent, you know, and he looks at these little countries with a mix of jealousy and, um, and, and he also kind of despises them in some way. You know, he thinks, of course, Saudi Arabia is the big country in the region. So, you know, what, what are these little countries doing? You know, they, 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 they've been doing everything that we should have done and we would have done it much better because we're much bigger, right? So in a sense, he's, he's, he's doing, you know, and these are uh, things that you would see in Qatar and the UAE for a long time, you know, giving, for instance, citizenship to, to talented expats. You know, this has been done for many years. Saudi, Saudi Arabia didn't do these type of things. So MBS wants to follow that model, but he also wants to, you know, he believes that Saudi Arabia can do this much better than the neighbors, because again, it has, a much bigger population, much uh, greater connections across uh, the Muslim world and the global community, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's that's the plan. Thanks again, Stefan and Yasmin. So now we've, we've, we're gonna shift the discussion a bit onto geopolitics because we've got a few questions on that. And again, I'm going to, to group them, although you know some are more uh, bilateral relations focused, but, but let me try. 
Um, so we've got one question from um, Okan Arikan, and 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 the question is, is can we assume that now that Saudi rulers are now willing to control both politics and society, can we now assume that Saudi Arabia will be next in line to normalize uh, relations with Israel, uh, which is of course an, the inevitable question that will come about the Abraham uh, Accords. Uh, bearing in mind that uh, regional alliance logic will be perceived as operational vis-a-vis -vis, uh, a common and imagined adversary such as such as Iran, and if so, are there any political impediments or, or, or obstacles on such a move for for the crown prince? So maybe let's reverse uh, the order of answering. Maybe Stefan, you can go, you can go first. Yes, thank you, Clemens, and thank you for the question. Um, well. <laughs> I, I think in the current context, I don't see Saudi Arabia normalizing anytime soon um, for different reasons. Um, one of them is that, um, um, you know, uh, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have soared recently. You know, they, they, they used to, there used to be an alliance between the two countries. And for the last year or so, We've seen relations um, deteriorate between the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And so now, you know, the Saudis are not willing to follow what appears to be the UAE lead anymore, right? And, and, and they actually want to appear as not following the UAE lead because they feel humiliated by the fact that everyone sees them as, you know, following the UAE lead and MBS following MBZ and this, all these, you know, all this has been very annoying for the Saudis. So in that sense, you know, the Saudis, the Saudi foreign policy has transformed over the last year. You know, if you if you follow these changes, it's quite uh, striking how Saudi Arabia has, um, you know, until 2020, you know, its foreign policy was relatively coherent following uh, the, UAE, the UAE. Since 2020, Saudi Arabia has started to break the ranks with the UAE. Uh, reconciliated with Qatar, uh, speaking to the Turks again, uh, trying to you know, establish relationships with everyone um, and understanding that it cannot put all its eggs in the same baskets, I think. And this is also the learning curve that I think uh, Yasmin talked about. I think MBS understood that you know, uh, he made a number of mistakes, you know, when he came in, in terms of foreign policy, especially because he, you know, came with a very one-sided vision. And now Saudi Arabia is uh, willing to, um, you know, be much more cautious, apparently for the moment, right? It, it's a one-man show, so it may change again, by the way, you know, and yes, is in a, is in a cautious phase, let's put it that way. <laughs> he could go back to an aggressive phase, you know. He tried aggression, it didn't work, now he's trying caution. Um, again, it's always very difficult when you analyze such a, a, a one-man show, precisely. So it was not a one-man show, by the way, before 2015. It's become a one-man show. And what is difficult when you analyze a one-man show is that in the end, it all depends on what What's uh, happening in the head of the ruler? He may decide to change his policy again, but for the moment it's caution, and he knows that normalization with Israel um, is uh, going to have a political cost internally. That it is not needed at this point. That it is, you know, um, uh, it would probably, you know, benefit the UAE more than would, that it would benefit the Saudis at this point. So uh, the Saudis are not, I think 
you know, they're, they're not ruling it out at all, but, you know, they're not uh, willing to hurry uh, on doing this. They, you know, and so, you know, and Trump is gone, which is another factor, you know, that, that, that's, that was also important in the possibility of normalization in 2020. Um, the Saudis don't need Trump's support anymore. And Biden probably wouldn't care as much. Um, the Saudis keep normalization as, again, something that, you know, they, a tool that they might need in the future. But at this point, I think that they, they're not uh, going to do this anytime soon. Thanks, Stefan. Yasmin, would you like to add? On. So I'll add um, to everything that Stefan said is that um, a couple of points when he talks about, um, well, first of all, I, again, I, I've always been bad at predictions. I don't even try because, you know, I don't believe it's my job. But what I can tell you is that I wrote extensively about this, about the different elements influencing this. And, you know, um, there is one simplistic answer that is always given that says that, you know, the king doesn't want it, that uh, the uh, security authorities think that despite all the efforts being done inside Saudi Arabia to change the mentality of Saudis when it comes to the relationship with Israel and with the Jews, which is really a, a, a dangerous game when you use the Jewish gate to link it to Israel, it's as Stefan said, you're not changing the ideology, right? You are telling people this is political. You're not telling them it's it was bad. What we told you about other communities was bad and you're changing it. It is the political link is just so obvious. Uh, and this is not good for tolerance, for coexistence, for religious reforms. But to go back to, um, to your point. So it is true that, you know, um, there is still some objection inside Saudi um, society, inside the security apparatus because of the backlash, definitely inside the religious establishment. Uh, that is true. And when Stefan talks about the domestic cost, it is not just domestic cost. There is also an external cost. I do believe, like Stefan said, that uh, Mohammed bin Salman doesn't think that Islam is a, the central piece of Saudi identity and thinks of it uh, as not the central piece of Saudi foreign policy. But because he is transactional, I think there is an awareness that it is an important tool in the Saudi toolbox. And he continues to play it. So while, for example, you have the word Muslim League with Muhammad Abdi Karim al-Aisha, truly, you know, handing some Islamic centers across the world back to, you know, uh, the domestic authorities and telling Muslims right there, you take your interpretations of Islam from your own imams living in your own societies and not from us. At the same very same time, you have the Minister of Islamic Affairs, uh, who is also a very pro-MBS, you know, supporter, uh, continuing his foreign trips on a very lower profile, continuing to maintain the link with Muslim communities abroad, and so on and so forth. And this is why I think there is some kind of consideration of the external cost of such a move. It will deprive Saudi Arabia of some sort of, you know, soft power tool that it can use against rivals such as Turkey, such as Qatar, such as Iran, and so on and so forth. There is also the point that Stefan talked about. What is the U.S. price? Because, you know, in the case of the Emirates and of Bahrain, but also of Sudan and Morocco, but especially in the case of Gulf countries, there was a lot of talk that the relationship 
the value of a relationship with Israel doesn't come from the US, it comes from uh, the security cooperation, the defense cooperation, the technology cooperation, the economic cooperation between the two parties, the Arab party and the Israeli party, right? But I mean, um, this is really um, so deceptive. It is not true. There was a US price paid uh, at every time. For Sudan, it was removing Sudan from the terrorist list. For Morocco, it was recognizing the sovereignty over Western Sahara. For the Emiratis, it's the F-35 planes. It was the same for Egypt. It was the same for Jordan, right? And so uh, in that case, the US and the pressure coming from Washington is significant. Where I would might maybe disagree or just add to uh, Stefan's point is that I was expecting that the Biden administration wouldn't be ready to do this because they have, you know, they came in with a very tense narrative on Saudi Arabia and, you know, uh, saying that they'll do things that they never did, by the way, and they just contact, you know, continue the relationship almost as usual, with the exception of the personal relationship between MBS and Biden. But it is still on the agenda. And I personally was very disappointed to see it on the agenda because it means that the U.S. is willing to pay some kind of price to Saudi Arabia to get this moving on, to get the normalization moving on. During his last visit to Saudi Arabia, Jake Sullivan, which is the top U.S. Uh, official uh, to visit Saudi Arabia, like above that there would be, uh, you know, Biden, uh, and to talk to MBS, um, it was brought up, you know, press reports said that it was brought up, the normalization with Israel was brought up. But I don't think uh, that this is going to take place. I don't think that the US pressure at this point is significant because the relationship is not going good and MBS doesn't seem to be following uh, up on, following on, sorry, on US requests in other domains, whether in Yemen or uh, on the oil market. So I don't think that, you know, the US requests on the Israeli um, um, front will move on but it doesn't mean that you know uh, the under the table relations will stop i think the security defense intelligence unfortunately cyber cooperation will continue thanks yasmin and stefan yasmin for also outlining the us saudi relations uh, in its current status uh we've got a, a bit of a wider question in terms of uh, regional implications of course stefan you talked a bit about you know this, the Saudis breaking away from the Emiratis uh, policies and, and, and you know having their own kind of policies. So we've got uh, a two-part question from uh, Ahmed Magahed. Uh, the first is uh, about part one of the question is, since it's all a one-man work, to what extent is this change sustainable or reversible after or in the absence of MBS? And the part two of that question is, is revolutionary in, in the sense of this term, as is, as change is perceived, a counter-revolutionary internal reaction to the regional revolutionary moment. And I assume that he's talking about the regional revolutionary moment as as the, the movements that have been going on the last two years. Uh, so yeah, over to you, uh, Stefan, first. Um, so, so, sorry, just to, to clarify the second question, Clements. Yeah, he, he asked, um, as far as revolutionary is concerned, is this a counter-revolutionary mm. internal reaction to the regional revolution right, revolutionary right. movement? Yeah, got it, got it, got it. Thanks. Um, well, I again, uh, um, I you know, it, this is this is a one-man show, and so you know, the the 
as I, as I argued on religious discourse, I think you know what, what I've argued on religious discourse uh, isn't simply about religious discourse. That is, uh, many of the changes because it's a top-down one-man show process. Um, you know, you know, can be reversed to some extent. I mean, some of the social consequences of those change will last for very long. You know, like you know what has been changing in people's life. You know, um, you know, many people who are happy with the changes at the social level will not want to go back. That's true. But at the same time, MBS might change his mind on many things. The way he's changed his mind in foreign policy, he may actually at some point decide to change his mind domestically. You know, MBS, uh, the MBS of tomorrow might be much more religiously conservative. If he sees a domestic political interest in becoming much more uh, uh, religiously conservative. So the same MBS who organizes concerts, you know, might decide at some point that, you know, we've had enough of concerts, you know, that, that and, and we want to use again, you know, the symbols of religious conservatism. Um, he will do this based on what he sees as his uh, political interest. Uh, what is true is that at this point, he's kind of uh, broken the independence of the, uh, of the, of the ulema. Of the, of the religious sector. So he will be able to impose upon them whatever religious line he decides. So for the moment, it's uh, generally when it comes to religion, progressive line. But again, it may turn conservative tomorrow uh, if he needs to. Um, the second thing, the second question on, on, on the kind of revolution. Well, yes, this is the Saudi, uh, Emirati version of the counter-revolution. Of course, you know, it's, it's in, it's, it, you know, you, in a sense, all of this is taking place within a historical sequence, which is the one that started with uh, the Arab uprisings. And it is the Saudi Emirati response to the Arab uprisings. You know, we, you people want change, we're gonna give you change, but this is the type of change we're gonna give you, you know? So in that sense, you know, it is also um, uh, branding change uh, as something that is not about democracy, not about political reform, but about uh, religion, moderate Islam, you know, as also a direct response to some of the forces that have been active in the Arab Spring, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, the biggest enemy, the boogeyman in, in, in Saudi Arabia and the UAE has become the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, which is basically accused of all the ills of Saudi Arabia. I mean, if you listen to um, the Saudi officials, they would tell you that everything that went wrong in Saudi Arabia over the last 50 years is because of the Muslim Brotherhood. So in that sense, yes, you know, they, what the Saudis are doing is that they are on the one hand, um, you know, attacking politically the forces that were unleashed by the revolutions and at the same time, promoting their own version of what they call change, you know? And, 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 um, and yes, so this is absolutely the, uh, the Saudi version, the Saudi Emirati, because what the Emirates are doing is very similar, uh, the Saudi Emirati version of the counter-revolution. Um, and it is actually, um, you know, a much more um, um, uh, attractive version of the counter-revolution than the Egyptian one, for instance, by the way. I mean, because, uh, you know, I mean, that the Emiratis are, for instance, um, really proud every year to show that um, the UAE is the country which in the polls conducted in the Arab world is the country where the biggest amount of Arabs would like 
to settle, you know, when you conduct a poll across the region, what, what you know, there is an Emirati dream across the Arab world. And MBS wants to construct the idea of a Saudi dream. He wants to make, you know, other Arabs want to come to Saudi Arabia, not just for religion, because they think they have a future in Saudi Arabia. You know, uh, of course, you cannot really say that of the CC version of the counter-revolution. You know, Egypt is not a, there's no Egyptian dream at this point, you know, where people would move to Egypt and be part of this great adventure. But so, you know, there is a proactive narrative, a proactive narrative in that particular form of the counter-revolution in the Gulf, which I think is, is, is quite different from uh, the counter-revolution in Egypt or in other countries in the region. Thanks. Thanks, Stefan. Yasmin, over to you. So just um, to add a couple of points on the sustainability of these changes, I totally agree with Stefan. These are all reversible changes because he is not trying to create really um, a, a change, uh, a wave of change on uh, the base level, right? These are all decisions taken from the top and whether they coincide or not with what people want, um, is not his first concern, right? It's uh, it's not like, again, if you compare it to the phase before, to King Abdullah's phase where you had national dialogue and people trying you know, to first have a grassroots mobilization. This is not the case. This is him taking decisions and using repression to implement them. It's great when they coincide with what people want. If they don't coincide with what people want, well, people just need to shut up, right? And, um, and here, I think, especially if you talk about the religious changes, as Stefan said, um, there is no real doctrinal debate taking place. There is no serious consideration of, you know, not once he has said that um, Wahhabism was wrong. He keeps on saying him and the official narrative is to say Wahhabism was right, but there was alien influences on it. And the essence of Wahhabism is not that bad. The furthest he went is saying that, you know, there are some inter interpretations in Wahhabism that if Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was living today, would have reconsidered, right? But he still doesn't dare in what, for example, Muhammad al-Aisa is doing. Uh, he, they still don't dare of organizing doctrinal debates or sending books that actually debunk and deconstruct what they used to say and saying, here is why we were wrong. And here is why we were telling you, we are telling you today that this should change. As long as you don't have this doctrinal debate as uh, on the grassroots level, then there are limits to this change because it is political. And as long as it is tied to the use of re violent repressive tools, and as long as it is very visibly politicized, there will always be a lack of credibility in it. I think what is still confused in the case of what's going on uh, with the new Saudi leadership that is not new any anymore. I mean, I'm talking about MBS here, is the confusion between legitimacy and popularity, right? So far, MBS and what he has been doing uh, are popular, you know, in, in, in some sectors of society. But does, it, does he still, does he, sorry, um, have today the legitimacy to rule the kind of legitimacy that his predecessors had, whether, Every crown prince before him 
served in the Saudi state for the public interest for decades before becoming crown prince, before becoming king of Saudi Arabia. They had their own fiefdoms that was a grassroots all over the way to the top, circles of support, right? People saw them as having the right to take such decisions because they earned this place, because not only they come from the Saud family, but because over the years they have served, they have distributed money left and right, they have given services left and right, the state has provided for them, right? He has cut off all this. So right now what he has is, is really popularity, which is the sad story of many uh, rulers in the Arab world. They come surfing on a wave of popularity, but when it comes to building legitimacy from you know, the base all the way to the top, this is where they meet uh, a problem because they don't want to do what it takes, which brings us back to the point that you raised before, inclusivity, right? Thanks, Yasmin and Stefan again. Uh, we've got a Two questions, well, one combined uh, question from my two colleagues, uh, Georgi and uh, Asif. Uh, they got, of course, a question on Afghanistan and, and the impact of Afghanistan uh, in the context of the Saudis' modernization initiatives. And, and there's a reference here from my colleagues saying that, you know, King Faisal rolled back his initiate, modernization initiatives upon, you know, upon the, the seizure of the Grand Mosque and also uh, the coming of being of the of the Iran of the Islamic Republic of Iran and 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 so will the recent Afghanistan episode and, and on the Tal Taliban for for that matter have an impact on on the kingdom? So Stefan, probably you you're up first. Um, th there's a number of things. Maybe here actually I would I would um, I would disagree with the 1979 narrative. And I think Yasmin said that before, you know, the, the narrative has been that, you know, Saudi Arabia was greatly modernizing in the 60s and 70s, and then came those uh, unfortunate events, you know, that, uh, you know, in Iran and, and, and in 1979, the Grand Mosque siege. And so uh, the Saudi regime had to become conservative and they had no other choice. Um, to me, this is an, kind of a, the, the narrative that is being written today you know, as a way to try to excuse. MBS has also, uh, you know, promoted that narrative. He added communism. You know, we had to do this because of communism, because, you know, basically, you know, we were allies of the US and so we needed uh, conservative Salafi Islam to fight communism. You know, as always in this narrative, there are parts of truth, but I think it's more complicated than that. I mean, if you go back to the, to King Faisal, the sixties and the seventies, you know, um, uh, Saudi Arabia was always deeply conservative. I mean, if you look at, you know, the social norms in the 60s and 70s, Saudi was not liberal. It's not true. Uh, there's been, you know, this whole, you know, taking pictures, you know, and, and, and the, to, to, to fuel that narrative, Saudis have, you know, found pictures of what was happening at Aramco in the 60s and 70s, which was always an enclave in the country, which was always a separate enclave in the country, where, yes, you would see, for instance, women, um, wearing dresses uh, and without a veil. But this was within the compound of Aramco. So when, when, when you know, pro-MBS Saudis exhume these pictures and say, oh, look how modern and moderate we were in the 70s and then the Sahwa came and it all went wrong. Uh, no, this was Aramco. Saudi Arabia was a very conservative country 
in the times of King Faisal. So in that sense, you know, I, I, would, I would first, I think, uh, make that little corrective to that narrative because I think that, um, again, you know, we as uh, historians of Saudi Arabia, we are committed to, you know, not letting this political narrative uh, set forth. I mean, uh, again, um, um, uh, just just that, that was a, that was a footnote on on, on the question. But um, the the response. Um, well, I think that the Taliban basically are recreating in Afghanistan, uh, you know, King Fahad's Saudi Arabia. I mean, the funny thing, you know, Taliban are, you know, you know, practicing a version of Sharia that is not very different from the one that existed in Saudi Arabia in the 80s and 90s. And, and until not recent, uh, not long ago. I mean, you know, they are the old Saudi Arabia in a sense. You know, the Taliban, for instance, say, uh, we're not against education anymore. That's the new Taliban speech. But we want to separate completely men and women. I mean, that is the case in Saudi Arabia, a bit less today because since King Abdullah and even more today, you start to have co-ed uh, universities. But that was always the case in Saudi Arabia to have separate education. So in a sense, yes, you know, the Taliban are kind of, you know, a resurgence of the old ways for the Saudis. Of course, Afghanistan doesn't have the money to make this work. I mean, you know, the problem, and this has been argued and I don't want to spend too much time here, but, um, the reason why Saudi Arabia could maintain its conservative system, uh, gender segregated conservative system is because it had a lot of money. Because, you know, creating two institutions instead of one, to have one for men and one for women requires a lot of resources. I mean, most conservative countries don't do this simply because they don't have the money to have two universities and two banks and two hospitals because you need one for women and one for men. So this is where the Taliban's ideological vision is going to crash with, uh, with the you know, economic reality of Afghanistan. But at the same time, the Taliban speech is very much the old Saudi Arabia speech. Uh, and you can see a certain nostalgia among the conservative Saudis when they look at the Taliban, for sure. Um, the, um, the, the Saudis have been saying that um, they are willing to influence the Taliban in the right direction today. I've heard that from... Uh, Saudi officials, you know, trying to, um, I don't think they can. I think that, you know, MBS's re-outreach to the Taliban is, is, is non-existent. I think that the old networks that connected the old conservative Saudis to movements like the Taliban today are mostly gone. So in a sense, you know, by, by sidelining many of these conservative networks, uh, MBS has also deprived himself of uh, the type of soft power that Saudi Arabia used to have with these types of groups. So today, um, what the Saudis can do in Afghanistan is only watch. Conservative Saudis will watch with nostalgia, but, uh, but that's it. But in the end, as I said, I mean, it, the, 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 the Taliban experiment is going to also to, you know, crash with the economic reality. So there's not gonna be, I mean, unfortunately, I, would, I mean, I would be happy for the Afghans if it would work, by the way. I mean, I think, you know, regardless of what we think, I mean, we always want people to uh, enjoy uh, uh, prosperity and whatever, you know, they, they, they but, but in that sense, you know, when you look at the economic factors in Afghanistan, we can mostly predict that, you know, Afghanistan is not gonna become a dream model for conservatives because of economic reasons, at least. So, um, so I don't think it will have such a major impact. Nostalgia, maybe, <laughs> for Thanks, the conservatives. Thanks. Yasmin? 
So um, I think Afghanistan is one of the cases where, you know, um, you see the cost of um, what Stefan talked about, the fact that MBS is so um, focused on PR. The, the whole policy, the whole MBS policy is built on what is biggest, tallest, you know, uh, things that he wants to, he wants to have the, everything that is uh, number one, which makes it very visible. And I think in Afghanistan is where he sees the limits of this policy in the sense that um, it has a cost when it comes to influence inside the Muslim world, because at the end of the day, you're still Saudi Arabia. And you could have done these things in a less shocking way, in a less provocative way, in a less violent way that would have maintained the kind of soft power influence that I was talking about. It is also true that it is not just MBS that has limited or even, you know, kind of in some senses put an end to Saudi influence over the Muslim world. After 2001, there was huge pressure from all Western powers and from the United States on Saudi Arabia that stigmatized Saudi Arabia's ties to other you know, this kind of network that produced radicals, that produced a 9-11 in some sense. And while other countries were allowed to continue developing monitored relations with these groups in order to be, you know, a security valve to, in case we need to negotiate with these groups, such as Qatar, Saudi Arabia was not allowed to play this role. Saudi Arabia was not allowed to have this kind of relationship, right? So uh, I think uh, as uh, Professor Lacroix said, it, 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 the influence of Saudi Arabia on Afghanistan is not going to be that significant. But as I said before, never underestimate the fact that this is still Saudi Arabia. Like this is not, again, um, he has done a lot of faux pas when it comes to Saudi Arabia's influence and network in the Muslim world, but it's still a wealthy country that hosts the two, you know, um, holy mosques. In terms of Afghanistan's influence inside Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, again, I hate to keep self-promoting, but because of the time, uh, we just, you know, did um, uh, uh, wrote a piece with my friend and colleague, George Fahmi, where you actually, uh, over the past 20 years in general in the Arab world, there has been, there has been kind of public disenchantment with Islam in politics. I'm not talking about Islam in society, but I'm talking Islam in, in politics, right? And even if there are uh, ultra conservatives who are going to look at Afghanistan, and even if there are young Islamists that did celebrate in Saudi Arabia, but across the Arab world as well, the return of Afghanistan, the return of the Taliban to Afghanistan, it doesn't mean that this is, a, the, the, is going to become the new trend in the Arab world. When mass demonstrations and mass mobilization happened over the past 20 years in the Arab world, it wasn't led by Islamists and it wasn't calling for Islamist rule. The, you know, if you look on a case by case basis, why the Islamists ended up riding the wave and, you know, governing, you can find that they didn't necessarily represent the majority of these societies. And this is why I like Stefan, I'm skeptical of the influence it is going to have. However, uh, um, I will not be surprised to see a return of the use of violence because you know the significance of the return of the Taliban and how it was framed on, on the social media, it was that they were able to uh, win against the superpower. And how did they win? They, were, they won through an armed struggle. 
and you know maybe this is the way to go and this is where you see again the limits of uh, everything having to do with the war on terror everything having to do with the fight against radical extremism thanks Yasmin and stefan for answering the afghanistan question uh of course time is running out but i'd like to use one more question to wrap up wrap up our discussion um, and this question comes from by email because I was having a chat with James Piscatori, uh, who was previously my mentor. So he wrote the book, uh, you know, Islam Beyond Borders. So he, he has a question for the speakers and, and he has communicated it to me. And it's about the dawah, dawah activity worldwide or the missionary, religious missionary activity. And probably this question also nicely wraps up the discussion back to our region, Southeast Asia. And much has been written about Islamic charity and, and dawah activity. That was also um, made known by the former Saudi Mufti Ibn Bas. Of course, Stefan, you talked about him earlier. And so where are we now in terms of uh, the, this kind of dawah activity and, and financial assistance to, to Muslim communities uh, around the world? So maybe, Stefan, you want to answer yes. that? Yes, and I want to pass my greetings on to James. Please, please tell him. I don't know if he's with us, but otherwise, if you can convey my greetings. Um, so um, I think that, um, again, we, we, we have to understand what the Saudi Dawa network is about, right? There has been uh, for uh, the last at least 50 or 60 years, a huge network of religious Islamic institutions across the world um, funded and supported by Saudi Arabia. Um, I think that there's been a lot of misunderstandings in why those institutions were created and how they were created. And I think we, try, we need to understand that to understand what's happening to them right now. Um, I think partly, um, I mean, you know, what I mean by misunderstanding here is that some people only see this as a political venture of soft power. You know, that, you know, the Saudis, again, you know, that, that, that uh, comparison with Iran that I talked about before, which I think is wrong. You know, so there's been a take on the Saudi Dawa network as being simply a political tool of soft power for the Saudis. I think it's more complicated than that. Those Dawa institutions abroad uh, responded to two very different rationales. The rationale number one was that because of the existing pact domestically between the princes and the ulama, it was seen as being part of the pact that the princes would give the ulama the financial means to do what the ulama consider it is their mission in life to do, which is to preach Islam. And so in many of cases, those institutions that were created abroad were not created with a clear Saudi um, political intent. They were created because the ulama had money and the ulama believed that you know it's the good thing to do to bring the message to people who don't know the message. So you cannot read, you know, the existence of any Islamic center across the world as, oh, why, what the Saudis want, why did they create a center in this region? Because they are trying to achieve such and such. In many cases, it was a religious venture driven by people who actually believed it was their mission to do so. Together with this coexisted the second rationale, which is, uh, which is one of, uh, which is more political, right? In some cases, those Dawa institutions also fulfilled a political uh, ambition, which was to counter uh, what the Saudi regime considered to be enemies. So this was the case when those Dawa institutions 
were established in places where they were meant to counter Arab nationalism, communism, you know, this was the whole thing in the 60s and 70s to try to counter uh, leftist ideologies by Islam. And then starting in the 80s to try to counter Iran, right? That explains to you why a place like Pakistan uh, has been such a great recipient of uh, Saudi religious money. Uh, because also, because the, the Saudis were greatly uh, worried about the Iranian influence in Pakistan, and they believed that they had to spread their own Islam to prevent the rise of Iranian influence. So the more there was Iran since the 80s, the more money the Saudis would put as a way to counter Iran. But those two rationales always coexisted, right? You can always read the existence of a Dawah institution or an Islamic center through a political narrative. You know, sometimes it was the case when there was an enemy to counter. Sometimes it was just a religious mission. Um, today, MBS has consider considerably downsized that network. He doesn't, again, MBS is transactional. <laughs> I talked about this before, you know, MBS is looking at this as what are we getting from it? So when there is no clear political uh, uh, use of these DAO institutions and when they cost money, MBS is like, why? You know, we don't need this, you know? So look at what he's been doing in Europe, you know? Uh, Islamic centers in Europe have caused controversies. Look at the uh, uh, Islamic center in Brussels or in Switzerland, you know? Um, those have caused controversies. So MBS has been willing to say, look, you know, this is causing controversy, it's costing us money. You wanna take it, take it. You know, we don't need it, right? Because this is not uh, so important in the great game uh, that Saudi Arabia is playing. In places where there is Iran, you know, the Saudis are keeping these networks very close because they are, or, or there is another enemy of theirs. You know, it could be Turkey sometimes today, right? This is important because we need to have that influence politically. So what I'm saying is, you know, these network is downsized. It is still there and is today probably responding to clearer political considerations than it used in the past because today MBS considers that, you know, um, it is not the time for Saudi Arabia to do, to do charity if there is no transaction involved, right? Or if there's no enemy to counter, right? So in that sense, probably th this explains to you what is happening with this Dawa network today. In terms of size, it's less than it was, and it is driven by, uh, uh, you know, where it remains. It is, it remains because there are uh, clearer political um, uh, reasons for it to remain. Thanks, Stefan. And I know you got to dash off at this moment, so <laughs> you can. And I, well, I leave Yasmin to do her the final words. Yeah, but, yeah, um, I'm fine with not. Um, like uh, I direct people to what we wrote in my paper with Nathan for the sake of time, and I have okay. nothing to add after Stefan, of course. Right. Excellent. So, so now I like to end off by saying a big thank you to our two speakers, Dr. Yasmin Farouk and Dr. Stefan Lacroix, for taking the time to, of course, share their wonderful insights. And it's, this has been a really frank assessment, discussion, and evaluation of the kingdom's uh, reforms. And stay in touch. And also thank you to our events team and the audience for providing the, the lively questions. Thank you. And bye-bye. Thank you very much to you all. Thanks, Clemens. Thank you.